welcome to Note Doctors. My name is Paul. My name is Jen. My name is Ben. And we are your hosts. We are all university music theory instructors who are passionate about music theory and music theory instruction. In this podcast, we will be talking about all things theory with some of the best music theory teachers in the country. If you want to know more about music theory and the most effective and innovative ways to teach it, this is the podcast for you. Hello and welcome back to Note Doctors. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, and we have a really cool episode coming up here and kind of a first of a series of episodes, kind of like a what music theory can offer to certain majors. So music ed, we're going to be having other areas like music therapy in coming weeks. But today we're going to be talking about what music ed students need, which I think is a really uh, good conversation to have uh, for us as we're teaching music to multiple different types of students. Before we though get into the conversation, we have some exciting news. Jen and Ben. It's amazing. We we got an email. We got an email to sent to note doctors podcast at gmail.com. That's note doctors podcast at gmail.com. We got an email from David McDonald. David, thank you so much for reaching out. And he had an awesome tip for um, Mm -hmm. uh, assigning homework and the challenge of creating too much homework or busy work. And so I'm just gonna actually read this from his email that he sent us because I think it's it's really great. and so he was, he's teaching theory one and um, he was, he read uh, this great book, Susan Blum's 2020 book, Up Ungrading, Why Rating Students Undermines Learning and What to Do Instead, mm-hmm. and adopted some new homework practices. First, he had two kinds of homework, very short, very frequent, very low stakes assignments that complete that students completed online in Musician. These were short time tasks to practice fluency with fundamentals. The tasks were every weekday but they were only two to five minutes timed and repeatable as many times as needed. So students who knew their stuff could knock it out and move on. And the students who needed more practice could go to got, got it without penalty. Then he had similar number, only six written assignments that were only slightly higher stakes. These usually engaged with slightly more complex, creative and analytical tasks engaged with real music and more fun. At least he thinks so. That's what he says. These he (laughs) graded pass fail with infinite resubmissions. Any errors had to be corrected to get credit. Having a small number of these and having the daily quizzes graded by the robots made the grading load totally manageable. Um, and he thinks the students learned a lot. That is an awesome tip, David, and that's a yeah. great idea. Um, and he also gave Ben some tips about using his iPad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank you so much, David. I appreciate it. I just got the Apple Pencil as well. So if you know anything about that, feel free to send us another message. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But uh, thank you so much uh, for sending that, and I appreciate any messages. If you wanted to get a shout-out on, uh, on Note Doctors on the podcast, send us an email, because right now we get so few <laughs> that we have time to mention each person who writes us. Um, That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but let's get on to our uh, uh, interview here. And so today we're actually talking to one of uh, Jen's colleagues at Dallas Baptist. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jen, tell us a little bit about our guest. So we're talking today to Dr. Becky Morrison. She is an associate professor of music and chair of music education at DBU, Dallas Baptist University, where we both teach. Um, She taught junior high music for 14 years in the public schools in Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas. And she also taught at Wachita Baptist University in Arkansas, 
as professor and chair of music ed department there. She loves teaching music to children and she loves preparing future music educators. And I can tell you as well that she's a fantastic colleague and we're thrilled to have her at DBU. We had a great chat today and I was certainly inspired by it. So stay tuned. But we have to know as teachers that the first thing about a teacher is being patient and making sure they learn and making sure that from that very beginning, they get it. Because if they don't, they won't. They, they won't get it later on, right? So our job as any kind of teacher, theory, history, music ed, voice, piano, is to make sure in the sequence they understand. And if they don't, be patient until they do. So today our very special guest is Dr. Becky Morrison from Dallas Baptist University, a colleague of Jen's, and we are so excited to have you on the podcast to talk with you about music education students, what they need in theory and oral skills. Um, and before though we get into the conversation, we always like to ask our guests a little bit about how they got into music. And um, you know, did you ever imagine yourself being on a music theory podcast? In your, in, <laughs> no, in your never. future. <laughs> I mean, who even knew of podcasts when I first started in college? <laughs> but no, I didn't ever picture that, but I think it's wonderful. Um, I got started in music as a kid. My parents loved music. They were not musicians, but they were singers, and we played records all the time and sang, you know, little songs as a family, not together, but just in the car, whatever. It was just musical. Um, so I loved music and I, I found that I had a knack for singing and uh, my parents just cultivated that. I mean, not, not over the top. They never got me voice lessons or anything, but um, just encouraged me, you know, to, to sing and to do what I love to do. Um, and so in high school, I thought, well, I can sing, so I, I better go major in music. <laughs> sure, idea. right. <laughs> and I had no idea. I had taken piano. I played by ear and by note, um, but didn't have theory. My teacher didn't teach me a lot of theory. It was just read these notes, play this song. And so when I got to college, I was overwhelmed. I started in uh, BME, um, and my first theory professor told me, he, said, he called me in his office and he said, Becky, you love all of this, you know, gesturing to the sky, this glorious sound, but you don't pay any attention to this, pointing <laughs> to the little minutia of, of how this happens. And I understood what he meant because that's how I felt. I didn't understand it. He was very patient with me and he helped me. I went to his office for tutoring and it was, I went to Drury University my first year. It was a very small music school. And he really helped me understand um, why it was important and why I needed to learn the nuts and bolts of music. Um, so that was my first uh, toe in the water of music and then I left I, I didn't know what I wanted to do 
and I worked at a ranch in Colorado. And I came back and decided, yes, I really did want to go to school to be a musician and and then went to Oklahoma Baptist University from there. And then you decided, what point did you realize that music education was, was the direction that you wanted to go in? So this is a uh, an interesting journey. Um, I started BME and I thought, oh my word, I don't want to teach people. I would like to sing. I would like to sing and be a star. And so I changed my major to vocal performance. And and I sang a lot. I I did. I, and it was wonderful. I went to North Texas, University of North Texas, and got a master's in opera. And uh, I sang for symphonies, and I sang opera, and, and it was wonderful. Um, then I had our first child in St. Louis. We were living in St. Louis at the time. And then I had our second child, and I still was singing. I was still doing things. My husband is very supportive. Um, still doing things locally and even overseas some uh, singing. Um, and then we moved to Oklahoma. And it was, uh, we moved there in 2000, right before 9-11-ish. And if the there was sort of a depression in Oklahoma, so there was a hiring freeze everywhere. I'd always taught adjunct at universities wherever we lived. And I didn't, uh, I didn't, couldn't get a job uh, teaching, so I taught privately in my home. And then the junior high band director in the town where we lived called me one day and said, um, there's a junior high position open. And I was like, yay. Well, why? I don't know why you're telling me that. And he said, I, I want you to apply. I sing opera. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please come sing. I don't know. It's so weird. So he said, I want you to apply for it. I said, Roger, I don't even have the BME degree. I, I didn't finish that. I mean, I went pretty far in it, but I didn't finish with the BME. And he said, well, I, I think you could do it. And I was like, hmm. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> so he convinced me to go apply for this job, and they called me for an interview, and I just thought, you people are so desperate. Now, I had, <laughs> I had done a lot of conducting, actually, at that point. I had done the Cimarron Opera Cool Kids Opera Camp in Norman through OU. I directed... Uh, the orchestra and all of that and worked with the singers and I had done a community uh, children's choir and I had worked with children's choir in my church for 20 years so I had a lot of that experience but I didn't ever equate that with public education um, so I went and I applied and I didn't have a certification so they kind of put me on the track of alternate cert but it couldn't happen within the 100 days and so they asked the teacher to come back she was just going for a leave of absence and she said okay and they hired me as her assistant that year because I could play the piano and and I fell in love with teaching and I thought I I really need to do this you know and I had already signed up for the test before we found out it was not going to work so I thought well I'll just take it I passed 
And then the next year, that teacher didn't come back, and they hired me. I was certified by then, and they hired me to take that position. So I fell into public education quite serendipitously, um, but found that I absolutely loved it. And junior high, no less. I don't know. Those kids are so weird. And I <laughs> I loved them, and I thought they were hilarious, and they could sing parts. And I just fell in love with it. So that's where I, that's where I stepped into public education. Um, after that, I thought, I need, I need some training. So I went and got Kodai certified. I got a master's in music education at Boston University um, and taught for 14 years. Um, when I got my doctorate at OU, it was in voice because um, I thought well, I really would like to go back and teach voice at the university level. But because I had a, a master's of music ed and I'd had all that experience, I was sort of a, a weird hybrid animal and I could do both voice and music ed and all of that. So that's where I have landed. That's what she does for us at DBU. She teaches yeah. both private voice and the music ed students. Right. So perfect fit. That's fantastic. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, I have also master's degree in performance and then undergrad in ed. So like having that kind of crossover I think has definitely benefited me and it contributes to my teaching as far as seeing different outcomes and different career paths, you know, that realizing that everyone is not a music theorist for sure. You know, in fact, the vast majority, thank goodness, are not music theorists. Um, <laughs> what a world teach. that would be. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, thanks again for, for sharing your story. That's really inspiring. And just to find your passion like that is really cool with middle schoolers nonetheless that's that's amazing yeah middle schoolers are crazy uh paul's wife is a middle school choir director and she's amazing but i have often just marveled like i don't know how you do this this is this is crazy these boys are smelly and wild um (laughs) that's been my impression at least in middle school so tell us about music ed majors we have them in our classes and we're trying to support them make sure they get what they you know, need from music theory and oral skills. So what kind of students are we seeing in music ed these days? You know, you're seeing students who've had either a really wonderful high school experience or junior high or elementary, depending. Um, Maybe they've had a great experience all the way through. Um, Who are kind of like me, who are like, well, I, I can do this and I do it well. I think I'll go and I love my teacher and want to do what they do, and I think I'll go be a music teacher and get my degree. Um, Now, with that said, they're coming in, especially now, with much less experience even than I had, because I came in with piano skills. I came in with with an ear, um, just naturally, um, even though I didn't have all the, the lingo and the verbiage. Um, so they're coming in to us with a love for music, but not an idea of what it takes to be a music major. Um, and that's a shock, I think. Um, but 
that's not all of them. I, I don't mean to say that that's every student that comes through. Um, but they have a love for music somewhere in their past and decide to come and major in music. Um, and they have bright aspirations for what they want to do and who they want to teach based on their own experience, I think. I've been wondering how the type of music education that students are getting the last few years, which has been at times interrupted, um, definitely disrupted, um, perhaps at times challenging to do at all. I mean, you during you know March to May of 2020, uh, unless you're really good at making videos, how are you having virtual choir? Um, and so, you know, I wonder how those students come in and what their expectations are for music ed. Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, it's been very hard because really music people are people who music and very much of the time we do that together and the pandemic has, has shut that down. And so experientially we've got kids that have sat behind a screen and experienced music in that way, kind of. And so it's what they're seeing in the public school is really what we're seeing in the university as well, that they're just two steps behind. Um, and so we've got to work to get them up to where they need to be when they come in. Um, and most of them don't know that they're behind because they don't have a frame of reference on, on what they've missed out on. Um, but you're right, music is so hard to do when we're not together. Uh, even if you're just one-on-one -on -one in a voice lesson or a trumpet lesson or whatever, you are you are limited, right? It's like one-dimensional as opposed to three-dimensional, you know. And I've taught voice online for a lot of a lot of students. I, I used to teach for Liberty, and they're all online. And while you you can do some good work, it just feels so incomplete, you know. I have to say when I talk about music ed majors that I feel like, and you can agree or disagree with this, of course, everyone is coming in to higher ed from so many different pathways, so many different areas of specialization, choir, not even, you know, even within choir, you have so many different areas of, of specialization, even within orchestra, you have so many different areas of, of specialization. And then also on the back end, a lot of them come into my office and I'll say, what is your end goal with music ed? You could hear any number of things. Some of them just want to do private lessons on, on cello or something, you know, but somebody else might want to do online teaching, you know, like I've heard that, you know, it's like an end goal, and that's a really cool end goal. Um, so it makes our jobs harder um, in higher education, I think, because we have to take all these students from so many different diverse places and say, okay, what are the skills that they are gonna need? What can we do to better prepare all of them to then go pursue all of these diverse pathways at the end? I mean, that's, how do we even start to approach that? That's that's so hard, you know, can you, can you even speak to that from your experience? You know, I find that this generation right now, uh, like say 18 to 30, are much more adaptable in so many ways than say my generation. So we thought we would go and work for 40 years and have a pension and all of that. Well, that doesn't exist anymore. And so you, 
this generation is much more adaptable. They will change their focus. They will go do something else without fear. And I love that about this generation. They think outside the box. And I do, I think that's really great. But you're right, it makes it hard for us. We we can't teach traditionally anymore for one track. Um, and we have to sort of begin to really think uh, circumspectly for them. What are your what are your goals? Do you have limitations with that goal? Um, how will you get from here to there? Um, it's a great thing to have, but it's hard for us, I think, in teaching. How do we bring that in? How do we how do we help them know? Well, you can do this. You can do that, and you can get a BME, and then you can go teach cello, or you can get a BME, and then you can go be a recording artist. You can get a BME and be anything you want, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you can teach. You can do anything. You know. What do you th- What do you think about the the students who say, "Well, I'm going to get a my bachelor's in music ed as the fallback. I want to." you know, be a recording artist, or, and, but I'm just going to get this education degree as like a, as a fallback option. Do you think that's a, I think that's a good attitude to have? <laughs> no, I don't think that's a good attitude to have because teaching is so much more important than just being your fallback. You know what I'm saying? Um, teaching has become uh very important in the life of a student, right? Um, We often say that educators are parents, they're counselors, they're moms, dads, whatever. You're not just a straight, you know, I'm going to teach my content and then I'm going to go home. That never happens, ever. It doesn't even happen for us, right, at the collegiate level. No. Um, So... We're teaching not just how to teach content. We're teaching how, <clears throat> excuse me, to care about students, to to notice their needs, to teach students with special needs. Um, how do we compensate for that in the music classroom? All of those things come into play. So if you think you're going to just teach as a fallback, you'll never teach at all because it will scare you half to death. Because that's not your calling. It's not your. It's not your thing. You know what I mean? Now, let me say this though: any bachelor of music education is like the Cadillac degree. It's the jumping-off point for many, many things. Whether you ever teach in the public school or not, you may teach elsewhere. You may go right into teaching collegiate music. Um, the methodology and the all of the theories and all of the things that you study in music ed, you know, Edwin Gordon, I mean, who can't benefit from his research? Um, David Elliott, Bennett Reamer, I mean, all these people who've done this great research on music and on how we feel it and how we know it and how we experience it, it can inform you for every part of music, performing, teaching, recording, um, all of the things. So it's a jumping off point for everybody, anybody. I, I wish everybody was a BME. 
I wish I had done it, you know. <laughs> I did it the hard way. I, you know, I had to get my stuff and pay for it another way. Um, but if, if, you, if you think, oh, well, if I don't make it in recording, then I'll go teach. That's a hard one. Because they're, they're not really ready for that, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. Well, I guess the question for maybe some of our listeners might be be wondering is, you know, as a theory instructor, how can we kind of tailor our, our lessons and our objectives uh, better towards music ed students? You know, what are those things that you see are most applicable, you know, or maybe even least applicable? Like, what are the things that we're doing that's just like, nope, take that out, <laughs> um, you know, to, for music ed students? You know, I've thought a lot about that, and I i don't think there's anything wrong with what you're teaching at all. I think on the part of the student, they need to grasp, and maybe this is where your, your teaching or mentoring comes in, why theory is so important. Why are oral skills so important? <laughs> I had a student come in one day, she's coming from theory, uh, they were studying counterpoint, and she put her books down on the desk and she said, why do I have to learn counterpoint? And she's coming into secondary choral methods. And I said, <laughs> because when you conduct a piece that has a fugue in it, a counterpoint in it, you've got to determine how you're going to treat this voice and how you're going to treat this voice and how does this come in? Is it retrograde? Is it something that that I need to treat differently vocally in a choir piece? How are you going to do a canon? How are you going to do a two-part canon without sounding like only one part of the song is crescendoing? Because that's what happens in a canon. It inevitably, everybody crescendos on this word, and then it just sounds like it's terrible. So you have to figure out, sorry, being honest, um, you have to figure out what that means. So music theory and oral skills informs everything you do, everything. So it behooves me as a student to jump in and learn all of it and love all of it. I, it thrills me to know that I can sit down to maybe an orchestration score, maybe an orchestra score, and I can read it. That's cool. Who can do that? Music natures, right? That I can actually read a clef, that I can actually, could, I could conduct that because I see where it's headed. I can see all of the chord structure. Um, I could do that. Um, maybe maybe it's simpler than that. Maybe it's not an orchestra score. But maybe I'm just looking at a two-part choral anthem. And I'm thinking, okay, I, I can make my own decision as a conductor on how I want this to sound, what I want to bring out. How does all of music history inform me on this? How does chord structure inform me on how I will treat this piece of music? 
So, what I think we're missing with Music Ed Kids is how does it all fit together? How do I apply music history, oral skills, music theory, all the things that I'm learning to my profession and to me as a performer? Um, when I got to North Texas and I, uh, Dr. Killam was my theory teacher and Dr. Grim Thornton was my oral skills teacher. And they were intimidating people <laughs> um, to just look at. Dr. Killam, didn't, she, she passed away a few years ago, um, but when she came in, she wore a navy skirt and a navy jacket, and her hair was gray, and it was up in a bun, and she had a limerick every day. <laughs> that was her. But she was wonderful, and we analyzed Bach Chorale out the wazoo and if I if I said well I think this is um, secondary dominant leading to you know it's resolution whatever it is and she'd say well why do you think that and I'd have to tell her well most of the time I was wrong but <laughs> one or two times I would be she'd be like not about secondary dominance but about something else maybe a pivot chord or something like that um, and she'd say oh, I'll take it. I can see why you see that. I'll take it. <laughs> it was the first time in my life that I had a theory teacher where it wasn't so hard and fast that maybe there was room for um, interpretation. And I loved that about her. Um, then when I got to OU, the theory teachers were awesome. And they were like that too. And I thought, so this is not so scary. This is not so hard. I can figure this out. When I took 20th century uh, music theory there, it it opened my eyes to 20th century music, right? 12 tone, tone set, just the atonal, um, you know, part of what 20th century music is for that, for art music. Um, so I don't know. I don't have any answers for you. I do tell the students, I'm like, delve in. Jump in. This is so awesome. Music theory is the best thing you can do for yourself as a musician. Figure it out. Learn it. Grasp it. Immerse yourself. So I, 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 do, I do that. I say that. I don't, they never believe me. <laughs> but, That's because the theory true. teachers uh, uh, don't hey follow through on it. <laughs> <laughs> Not at DBU. Not at DBU. <laughs> Too funny. I think one of the things I was I was thinking about as you're talking about you know, the why you know and, and mm. connecting with those students is so oftentimes we use music that does not connect to them like choral no. music, band music. Are, especially band music are, is rarely used as musical examples mm-hmm. um, in in a class, and and if they can't see the music that they're playing, you know, in those in those lessons, it's it's a it, it, yeah. it's a problem. So I I wonder. We've talked a lot about theory, but I think like oral skills is you know as far as sight singing, dictation, you know, ear training. 
Perhaps maybe sure. even more important, I always like to ask my theory pedagogy students at the beginning of the year, what's more important, theory or oral skills, like in their life? Because they're graduate students, they've been out of, you know, theory for a yeah. while. Every class, it's always oral skills is more important than, you know, what they learned in theory. So can you talk to us about a little bit about what music ed majors need with their ear training? So music ed majors need, first of all, to know how to tune their own voice. Um, we often will hear, okay, so just take elementary methods for, for just as an example. So I have to teach by rote to the little bitties, right? They don't read music yet. And so I'm teaching by rote. So I have to know, bluebird, bluebird, and they have to sing that back to me. Then I have to know where I'm headed. Through my window. And that sounds really simple to do, but it's not. And I'll find that students have trouble audiating their next pitch when they're teaching by rote. So they have to learn what tuning is for their own voice. You know, choral teachers, this is our instrument. We don't have another one. I mean, we use the piano for sure, but even then we have to tune to that piano. So a fine-tuned ear is very important for a music educator. Certainly knowing solfege. I mean, it is musical language. And knowing it backwards and forwards. Being able to do do, re, major, second, do, mi, major. All the things within that solfege ladder is very important for them to understand. Um, because then you can apply that to the mode. You can apply that to everything, um, those steps and skips and tuning and all of that. So oral skills is primo, you know, um, because that's what we continue to use. And music theory, we use that too. It's not like we don't use that, but it's very, it's on the lower end of what we do. We certainly don't ever do tone set, not in choral music. You know, you don't start with um, zero one four to the little itty bitties. Oh, well, that'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, so music theory is is certainly uh, the common practice theory is what we do. You know, major minor keys, the modes. Um, you know, non tone, non chord tones that you have to assign a solfege uh, syllable to. Those kinds of things. So those are really important. But I would say the personal musicianship of what you learn in oral skills is what needs to be honed and what you use the rest of your career, for sure. <laughs> I, I have often thought that the thing that we don't do enough of in oral skills, and I'd like to correct this, um, of course, there's only so many hours in a day, but um, we don't do True. enough error detection. And mm. I know that our music ed students desperately need error detection as a firm skill. And a lot of mm -hmm. the error detection that we do right now, it's just sort of the way our book is constructed. It's actually reverse error detection where I'm playing it correctly and what they're looking at is wrong. But I need to make a whole slew of examples where they're seeing the score and, you know, maybe the trombone is playing a wrong note or the altos 
No, altos never sing wrong notes. The soprano <laughs> is singing a wrong note. <laughs> Uh-oh. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> you know, things like that. That's one of the things, that's one of the skills that I feel like we should be doing a lot more of in aural skills um, that would be even more useful than something like dictation, which is still an incredibly useful skill, trains your mm-hmm. ear, but more, even more useful than that as a directly applicable job skill for for really not just music educators but and any musician um to have so well the other part of that jen is that uh those kinds of questions are on the texas certification test error detection is part of that um and when you can think of of course as a choral music educator you're listening to voices typically you don't have instruments until you know, right before your performance. Um, And then you deal with the instrumentals sort of on their own if they're not playing right pitches. Um, But error detection is huge. You know, can I hear when my my altos are under pitch? Or if my basses are under pitch, then my whole structure is wrong. I need to be able to hear that. I need to know what voice is doing what. So you're right, error detection is huge in the choral music classroom Um, and in the band. I mean, it's it's everywhere. You have to be able to hear it. And and in the band, you have to be like, oh, okay, that was the trombones or that was, you know, that was my clarinet section. They're totally off, you know. So it's something that needs to be probably done more. Sure. Agreed. Yeah, my follow-up was, was going to be about uh, the hearings. A lot of times we have hearings for, for singing and sight singing. And a while ago, we had kind of mixed in some ensembled singing as part of the hearing. So they would do part of their hearing individually to kind of address this issue. I, I hope we did, at least, of kind of finding your own voice, you know, tuning your own voice like you were mentioning. But do you think there's another side of that where as part of their hearing or as part of their unit assessment, let's say, they perform with an ensemble. You know, I think part of the ensemble, things I've heard from ensemble directors are, well, they need to do more in the ensemble. They need to do more performance-oriented activities with each other in, like, Mm. small mini peer ensembles. Mm -hmm. What do you feel about that and, like, that balance of, like, individualized assessment versus, like, a, a more ensemble or small ensemble assessment because I've heard really polarizing views on this actually on on either side I mean I'm not going to say that I have a strong feeling for one more than the other I think it's all useful Um, you know if you have a quartet of singers or a quartet of players that's very they're very exposed right and so they can hear they can tune you can tell who's not able to do that an assessment uh kind of scenario um and then the large ensemble too you know one of the greatest things about a big band or a big choir is that you're you're musicking all together you're making that sound all together you're listening to everything around you hopefully you're blending with everybody around you and that trains the ear too in an informal setting um and they are so useful you know, if you can pull a quartet out of your choir to test them, do you know this? How are you singing this? 
what can you do better, right? What makes things go flat? You know, there are two things primarily, lack of breath support and vowel shape. That's what makes tone go flat. So how can we fix that? Or how can the individual go, ooh, I'm not, I'm not quite on with everybody. What am I doing wrong? All of that is useful. Not one more than the other, in my opinion. Yeah, no, that's the way I feel too. I feel like there's, mm-hmm. there's got to be advantages to each side of that. And yeah. we have to kind of try to balance that with what we're doing in class, what we're doing with assessment, kind of the whole package has to, has to be there, you know, if you want to get those outcomes. Right. I will, I will often quiz on a duet in, in oral skills. I'll have, you know, I'll give them a couple of minutes to prepare together and then they sing to the class and man, it does inform you. You learn a lot. There'll be students who, you know, are strong, but they'll sing and their duet partner will be completely off and they are on to the end, you know, or there'll be a student who you're like, that student's really strong. They've got this. And then they make one wrong note and they can't get back on to where they need to be. So it really does tell Mm -hmm. you a lot about where your students are in terms of kind of confidence. It also helps a lot with tuning when you're singing by yourself, you know, I mean, yeah. A good oral skills teacher can hear if a student's out of tune when they're singing by themselves, but it helps them to to tune better if they have to sing against someone else. It can point out like, oh, man, I'm really not singing that in tune. So um, I do think it's beneficial. I don't it's not on tests usually for me, but I do quiz on it throughout the semester when I teach oral skills. Yeah, because tuning can be so much more than just the pitch. It can be the vowel shape. I was I was yeah. singing in church with with um, one of the other sopranos, and I was harmonizing with her. And normally I sing with my wife, who's like an alto. She can belt, and I would sing harmony. And like I know how to harmonize with her and like the vowel shape. And then I'm singing with this other woman, and she's more of a soprano who doesn't really have a belt and has to sing with this really squashed palette and so she's like spreading everything and i realized like i have to spread my vowels so i'm in tune with this different singer and so it's not even a pitch issue it's more of the vowel shape and Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. modifying that and kind of hearing that okay like my thing does not go with this how do i change that and you know i'm i'm the guy who's like i'll change the way I'm singing so but um, but (laughs) being able to hear that and say you know I think that's an interesting skill to be not just be able to sing in tune but just sing in tune with another person who's not necessarily Mm -hmm. in tune but still you know you're working together to kind of make this tune in tune sound yeah I think of tones uh, you know like round and right in the center is the the pitch you can sing on the underside of that pitch or on the top of that pitch. And it's all the vowel. It's all the vowel at that point. Now, you can have somebody who's really sharp, like a halftone sharp. That's just sharp. But there's that vowel shape that, that makes it the tone that it is, whatever it is, you know. Not pure, but something different. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> And then now you, have you Jacob Collier. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, I know that guy. Oh man. 
Yeah, he had me singing like microtonal voice leading for, you know, about two days every time I'd come back in my office and shut the door, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to try today, I'm going to try to turn a major third into like 11 pieces. So, you know, (laughs) eventually. One, two, three, four, five, six, that thing. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Oh, my word. So eventually I was like, I got to grade something. This is, I can't keep doing, I can't keep spending all my time on this. Anyway, you mentioned the, um, the certification exam. Can you give us a sense of what kinds of things from music theory and oral skills tend to show up on those certification exams? And you've actually done two, right? You did, you would have done one in Oklahoma, but you've also been certified in Texas. Is that right? I did not have to take the test here. Oh, because it transferred. Sure. Well, and they were just like, oh yeah, you you don't have to take it. (laughs) I don't know. I really wanted to. I thought, oh, I want to see what's on this test. Well, I wish I had, because then I would be more informed, but. I do have lots of people who have taken it and who've talked to their students and Dr. McCullers here would quiz the kids after, you know, what, what was on it, you know, so we know what to study. So I do know some things. Um, modes are a big deal on that test. Um, error detection is also a big deal, not just of notes, but of articulation. Um, you know, slurs and staccato and all of that. Um, qualities of chords, major, minor, diminished, augmented. So they'll play chords. Is this, what is this, you know? Um, and then chord progression, right? They'll have to listen and see what the chord progression is. Of course, they always have four choices, you know? So they can eliminate quite a bit right away. Um, but then there's nuance, you know, is it a two six? Is it a diminished? Is it? You know, is what the, what inversion is it in? Um, you know, fully diminished, half diminished? I don't know. So the quality of the chords is very important on that test. Um, is what I've seen. Um, and they'll ask they'll ask some, you know, kind of just questions about theory. Uh, they'll ask about form. Maybe what is a sonata form? What are the parts to a sonata form? Um, and questions about figured bass, some, um, but it's just a smattering, you know, the first 20 questions are listening. Um, and so they have to know, you know, what, what does a trio sound like? You know, what instruments are in a trio, uh, in a, a Bach trio, say, um, and that kind of stuff. So listening, of course, is on period music, but also they, they can ask theoretic the, theory questions about that too. Um, and it's just a, who knows what you'll get, you know, who knows? Yeah. I, I helped a student prepare a few years ago and I thought about, there were lots of, um, interval listening and chord listening, mm-hmm. as you said, mm-hmm. and we don't tend to do as much of those discrete things, um, in our skills because, I mean, the research shows those discrete things actually don't really help them that much. But yeah, as I was helping her prepare, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, as I was helping her prepare, especially for the chord sounds, it was interesting how, you know, I was like, okay, how do I get, how do I help her with this? We sang them, we did, you know, all these, all sorts of things like that. And eventually for the seventh chords, what worked was like major seven, she associated with jazz 
dominant seven, she could tell was the dominant minor seven. She was like, that's the one I, I I mean, it sounds like, is it major? Is it minor? I don't know. And then half diminished was the Christmas chord to her and fully diminished was a train whistle. And so I would, I would play these chords and all these inversions and she'd be like, uh, train whistle, uh, jazz, uh, (laughs) nebulous. Uh, and I, I had to learn like, okay, oh, she's right. Yeah. That is a major seven chord, <laughs> but yeah. she had, I was like, as long as you know what your labels associate with, I guess that's right. fine. But you know, yeah, you can't yeah. put train whistle on the test. I've definitely taught it that way and seen tests with my little ways of remembering marked up. Like I teach the minor seven and talk about star power from the Mario series. And then I'll see on the test, like little caricatures of stuff that I've talked about in class or John legend or something, you know, major sevens. Yeah. All yeah. kinds of that stuff. I think that definitely for some reason, the proof is in the pudding because the students are the ones that have told me what, has worked in the past with mm-hmm. just those mm-hmm. isolated sonority drill or something like that, you know, and they'll say, Oh yeah, that sounds like whatever tune. And I'm just kind of, okay, well, if that works for you, let's go with it. And, you know, kind of make that part of your, your way of, of internalizing this. Yeah. And then you'll see it on the test. <laughs> <laughs> Likely. So, so one of the things about being a theory professor is that you can go to school for many, many years. So many years. With the plan of teaching as your full-time job um, and rarely take any music ed classes. Maybe take one or two pedagogy classes uh, mm-hmm. at the end of your doctoral degree. Um, so we, and that that just drives my wife crazy, who's of course a middle school choir director and knows all these educational things. Um, yep. But honestly, she has been, and probably Ben, who uh, his wife is a is a teacher as well. It's been kind of like a like kind of an, uh, an ace in my in my back pocket, or I'm not sure what the uh, analogy is. But like, if I have questions about education or like, well, how else could I do this? She has this wealth of information and all this. Like, well, have you thought about you know? this or that or this theory or well you know you mm-hmm. think about bloom's taxonomy or maslow's hierarchy and all these yeah. things and i'm like well what is that all and you things. know i'm like right <laughs> and so you know as a music educator what kind of advice would you give to and maybe this is it can be really general because it's not about the content it's about mm-hmm. how to be a good teacher how <laughs> we have music theory people who need to know how to be a good teacher <laughs> How do you do that? And can you t- tell us that in like five minutes? <laughs> sure. Um, you know, this is what I tell my college students. And I think it works all the way up. Please do not unload all of your educational prowess on a five-year-old. When you go into the music classroom, you meet them where they are. And you start there and go incrementally, sequentially throughout the content. Pausing when they don't understand and teaching again, because that's what teachers do. Um, I would say, and we all have doctorates, right? So we, I think we've all experienced this. We, we have this beautiful season of higher level thinking with our colleagues with our professors and it's like it's like heaven for us 
to sit and talk about the things we love to talk about on the highest level possible. And then we get into our first college teaching experience. And we think we're all that in a bag of chips. And we get in there and we find that we cannot teach at all. We don't know anything. And maybe we have an imposter syndrome or something like that. And for the first three years, we we don't know anything. We do know. But, but taking us out of that realm and pulling us down back into the undergraduate level or elementary level or whatever, um, it's beginning to understand again how we learned and how we got where we are. So it starts little, and it starts with us teaching, really teaching, right? This is a major third. It has a sound to it. It has a quality to it. It has a function to it. It can be, you know, talked about in many different ways. How's the best way for my student to understand? What's a major third? And so we we think, oh, that's basic. That's so basic. I'm so bored. I, let's move on, you know. But we have to know as teachers that the first thing about a teacher is being patient and making sure they learn and making sure that from that very beginning they get it. Because if they don't, they won't. They, they won't get it later on, right? So our job as any kind of teacher, theory, history, music ed, voice, piano, is to make sure in the sequence they understand. And if they don't, be patient until they do. That's hard. That's my best advice. <laughs> words of wisdom right there no doubt yeah for sure I, it's it's such a hard thing when you're teaching like fundamentals or theory one mm-hmm. because I learned to read music as like a three or four year old and so I I can't even I I have not had the experience <laughs> of being in fundamentals, never having read bass clef in my life at 18 years old. Mm. So yeah, I really appreciate there is sometimes a a feeling to us of like, this is come on, come on, why don't you have it? (laughs) But they are processing so much information just to tell you that that note is a D flat or whatever, Mm. you know, so patience is key for sure. It's not a fun quality. (laughs) no but it is necessary (laughs) yeah and meeting them where they are that just makes me think of last semester because we you know we all come back to school and for example we have theory three which was the continuation of an online theory one and an online theory two or a zoom theory Mm -hmm. one and a zoom theory Mm -hmm. two and if you thought of that as this is going to be your normal quote-unquote theory three then that was just a a vast, um, you know, mis- misstatement um, <laughs> for any of us that I think we're teaching a continuation of what was last year's, you know, Zoom 
Zoom class or online class modules central. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. And and pandemic has changed so many things, but it's brought some really great things to light as well. You know, how creative can we be? You know, and then when they come back and they're behind in so many ways, right? So um, I was teaching in Pasadena before I came here, teaching junior high. And we noticed that they weren't seventh and eighth graders. Really, they were sixth and seventh graders. So we we had to really back that up and figure out how to how to teach at that level and how to bring them forward to the place they needed to be for their next grade level. Um, and I think we're all experiencing that. That a senior was really more like a junior, emotionally, you know, even. Well, experientially for sure, and maybe even educationally. So we have to be creative. And I think that's given us a, a good dose of, ooh, how can we do that? We've got to try. We've got to do it. So let's let's get after it, you know. It's been a good thing, I think. Yeah. So is it rapid fire time? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I, I mean, this has been a treat, and I, f- I feel very inspired uh, to have patience with my students. Um, but no, I think it's it's seeing like the humanity of these folks, mm-hmm. and rather mm-hmm. than okay, well, we're going to do these things on the syllabus because that's what you're supposed to do, and that's why. We're, but like meeting them where they are at, like seeing them as as humans, seeing them as musicians that have goals, and getting them to where they can be successful. That's, that's at the heart of what we're trying to do. So right. let's, uh, let's get to some rapid fire. I think um, this was, I think you're the most nervous about this section, right, Becky? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't tell you this, but I will tell you that theory did not come naturally for me. <laughs> it wasn't like I walked out of the forest and could just do it. We're not going to quiz you. Don't worry. No, <laughs> no, no It's not the goal of rapid fire. Yeah. All right. Okay. Okay. Well, I, I think I can, I can go. All right. So this, I, I'm asking you because you are in a uh, public education choir background, your thoughts on minor law, law versus minor doe. So. <laughs> I'm a Kodai person. So. Movable dough, law-based minor, but okay. I see I see the the need for fixed dough. I do. I think it's a great thing, but when you're teaching children, movable dough, law-based minor. Sounds good. I can get behind <laughs> that. Fair enough. <laughs> yep. All right, I'll go next. I'm come from the band world personally, and I always want to try to integrate new excerpts into class. So coming from the choral literature background, what is one of your favorite, you know, excerpts that you've taught or one excerpt that, you know, you you would say, you know, in theory one, if my professor would have played this, it would have really sucked me in that day. You know, I think, don't kill me. I think anything Bach that you play is helpful. Seriously. Um, sheep may safely graze is one of my favorites. Um, one of the things that Bach teaches us is the fitting together of things. 
Now, I know the response in the classical period. I get that. But but there's such useful things in Bach, vocal music, um, that that parallel all of his instrumental music as well, you know, the writing. And so you could make that correlation, right? Anything Bach. Yeah. All right, so here's mine. Okay. From your from your undergraduate days when you were in music theory and aural skills, what was the thing that you hated the most that that you learned in those classes? All of it. No. <laughs> <laughs> we're cutting that from the the podcast. I because I didn't have any musical language. Okay, like I didn't know solfege. I didn't know numbers. So every time it came around in that Ottman book, because that's what we used for sight reading, sight singing, um, I I didn't know what to do. I would be like, la, la, la. I did law. I mean. <laughs> so, movable law. <laughs> movable law. <laughs> All over the place <laughs> law is what I did. Now, I could I could read it because I had been a pianist. I played the piano for so long when I got to college. I played the piano from second grade. So I knew the intervals, and I knew what they sounded like in my ear. But then making that transfer to a syllable, I didn't know, I didn't know how to do that. And I, um, they were like, oh, just use anything you want. I wish they had said, let's use numbers or let's use sofa. And let me teach you how to do that. I, I wish they had done that. That would have been so helpful to me. That's what I hated most. Though. Public <laughs> sight reading on law. There you go. That's fair. That is fair. Mine would have been harmonic dictation, but it was mostly because my teacher was just like, here's a chord. Can't you tell that that's four? Here's another one. Can't you tell that that's one? <laughs> sometimes it felt like, I don't know. I don't, maybe I can, maybe I can't. Is there a secret? <laughs> so, you know, eventually, now we use a guide tone system. If I had had that, I would have been golden. I wouldn't have hated harmonic yes. dictation at all. But yeah, with the right. can't you tell method, it was pretty terrible. Yeah. <laughs> that is terrible. So, yeah, it was not fun. <laughs> not fun. So as we're wrapping up, maybe uh, let our listeners know, you know, maybe where people can find you, email address, and kind of maybe what, obviously you're, you just started at DBU, so you have all sorts of things uh, on your front burner and multiple burners probably going on, uh, but things that you're kind of interested in doing uh, with your own research and your own uh, teaching. Um, I can be reached at beckym at dbu.edu. Um, my... My first uh, area of research that I would like to do is multicultural. So, you know, we have Kodai based on American folk song, and that's what we've done for years and years and years, and that works pretty well. But not everybody comes from America. And I think it would be really neat to to understand the cultures that are around where, where I live, right, in Dallas, Fort Worth, um, and see how we might incorporate that, bring that in. I'm 
researching right now how to start a children's choir close to us. Um, but the demographics do not look like DBU. So, which intrigues me all the more, to be honest. How can we bring music to um, the people around us? How can we, how can we, not just be high on the hill where people go like, oh yeah, there's that white chapel, right? <laughs> um, but what does that mean to me? You know, how can we um, touch those kids and and give them a great, great, fun musical experience? that they may not get otherwise. Um, that's really my, right now, what I'd love to do. And reaching those cultures that are in our schools, you know, Hispanic and Asian and Indian and um, anything else, African-American, all those things that, that do not fit in the sequence of um, of rhythm for Kodai and how it's taught, you know. Because those cultures do not begin with ta and titi. No. They begin with other that things. That is true. You know, how how can we, rather than squish them into something we've made, how can we help them from their culture? So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening to Note Doctors, the music theory and pedagogy podcast. We will be back with more interviews with professors and teachers who will be dropping all sorts of theory knowledge for your education, edification, and enjoyment. So until then, bye-bye.